0: Sermons from Union Chapel Baptist Church Our series through the book of Matthew We've been preaching verse by verse And we are in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 5 Starting in verse 33 And the title of today's sermon is What is love? What is love? And in the context of our passage, Matthew 5, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, and in the beginning of the sermon, we saw and learned how we do not obey Jesus to earn our entrance into the kingdom, but once we are accepted into the kingdom by trusting in Jesus as our God, Savior, and King of our whole life, once we have that faith, He gives us a new heart, and He brings us into His kingdom. And once we are in the kingdom, then we live as we are citizens of the kingdom. We live by God's law. So we are in God's kingdom by faith in Him, and we are living by the power of His Spirit with a pure heart that He has given us through the new covenant. And in today's passage, we will see what it looks like to live by love. And as we saw last week in our discussion of lust and adultery, all the commandments are summed up in love. As Paul writes in Romans 13, 9, he says, For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And What kind of love are we talking about? We're not talking about a Hollywood version of love that you see in movies or a cheap puppy love or an emotional, ever-changing feeling of love. No, today we're looking at what biblical love is. And we'll see three main ways we can love. Love is demonstrated first. Love speaks the truth. And then second, we will see how love does not seek revenge. And then lastly, we'll see that love is ultimately for the other's good. We are loving them for their good. So first, love speaks the truth. Beginning in Matthew 5, verse 33. Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the, the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So in verse 33, when Jesus says, You've heard it said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That is actually probably a rabbinic paraphrase of Old Testament passages like Leviticus 19, 12, Numbers 30, verse 3, and Deuteronomy 23, 21. So they use these passages and they use this phrase, You shall not swear falsely, as a loophole to actually get away with a lie because they would say in cases where they did not swear or take an oath. For example, I could say, I'll be done preaching by noon today. And if I'm not, uh, Robert Tant will definitely come up to me afterwards and say, why did you lie to me, Josh? And I say, well, I didn't promise I'll be done by noon. So I technically didn't lie. And so that's what the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day would do with, uh, with the promises and swears. They would say, well, I didn't promise, I didn't swear, so I didn't technically lie. So they would use these loopholes to deceive people. And that's what Jesus is teaching against. And they did, the Pharisees and the religious leaders did something similar with the phrase, perform to the Lord what you have sworn. For they said... See, the Bible says, or they would twist the Bible to make it mean what it wants, what they wanted to. They said, we just have to be honest with God. We don't have to be honest with everybody else. And so they would twist the scriptures and get loopholes to deceive people. But Jesus is teaching us to be truthful in all things. And so he corrects their false teaching in verse 34. He removes all the loopholes. He says... I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. So followers of Jesus are to be honest and truthful all of the time, with no hint of deceit. Thus, when we speak, people do not ask us whether, do you promise or do you swear that you're telling the truth? Because they should see by our integrity that we are honest people that there will be no need to second guess what we say. We can simply say yes or no, and they should believe us. We do not have to make elaborate promises and swears and oaths to convince them that we're telling the truth. Our honesty should be normal for us in everyday life, and even with big decisions as well. So while Jesus takes away their loopholes, he also corrects their view of God's authority See, they were swearing by things like the throne of God because you don't have the authority to destroy yourself. And we can learn uh, a practical, ethical uh, influences from this because this influences how we view issues of suicide, issues of abortion, euthanasia, stem cell research, and human medical experimentation. For we do not have the authority of God. To decide who dies in these situations. We can't play those cards. So thus we should not swear by any of these these things. And Jesus' main point is he's commanding our honesty. As he sums up in verse 37, he says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Because anything more than this, any elaborate swear or promise is seeking to deceive someone in Jesus' time. And he's not saying you can never make a promise or you can't make an oath in court. That's not his point. His point is, don't use these things to deceive people. So how does this apply practically in our own lives? What are some scenarios in which we are tempted to lie and deceive others? Maybe we are tempted to lie and deceive others... When we have done wrong, when we have made a mistake, when we have sinned, we want to hide the sin. We want to deceive others and make them think that we have done no wrong. We don't want others to think badly badly of us, so we're tempted to lie and make ourselves look better than we actually are. But if you're in Christ, Christ has forgiven you of every single sin. You have no reason to hide your sin any longer. And following Jesus means being transparently honest about our failures. Being transparent and honest with those we love. Now you you may also be tempted to lie to gain some kind of benefit. Whether that be financial or anything else. We must be people that stand for the truth even if it costs us something. To tell the truth the first time. Because... I know from experience, after every lie is waiting another lie. To hold up the first. And it will just be increasingly difficult to bring forth the truth under the weight of all the lies you've already told. So tell the truth the first time. And lastly, let us learn from the story of Ananias. In Acts 5, starting in verse 1. We see Acts 5, 1. Says a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and bought brought only part of it, and laid it at the apostle's feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. So in this passage, we see Ananias lying to both men, and ultimately his lie was to God. And the point was not that he didn't give all his money to the church. The point was that he lied and wanted to deceive them, thinking that he did. As Peter says, you could have done anything with it. It was your property. It was yours to sell and it was yours to give. But you lied, and you lied ultimately to God. And a great fear came upon the church when they heard about Ananias' judgment. So we should not take God's grace for granted. We should fear the Lord, obey King Jesus today, repent of any lies and deceit and be truth tellers from here on out. For truth telling is demonstrating our love for God and our love for others. Which leads us to our second point, love does not seek revenge. Matthew 5:38 So in verse 38, Jesus directs, uh, directly quotes portions of the Old Testament law of retribution. And then that can be found in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. And the purpose of the law in the Old Testament was to ensure justice. That the punishment would match the crime. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You didn't want to punish someone for a petty crime with capital punishment or you didn't want someone that did a, hurt, a very heinous crime to just a slap on the wrist the crime should meet the punishment that was the purpose of those Old Testament laws but yet again people in Jesus' day wanted to twist the scripture and use it to justify something evil and they used this scripture to justify personal acts of vengeance so they say you hurt me so I'm going to hurt you back You were evil to me, I'm going to pay you back with evil. And Jesus is saying that's not the point at all. You're misunderstanding. You're not to seek revenge. And that is his point in these four examples. In any area of life, whether physical, legal cases, it doesn't matter. You're not supposed to seek revenge. So in verse 39, he says, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. So we have a physical harm, a physical example where we should not seek revenge, but turn the other cheek. Now Jesus is not forbidding self-defense. He's not saying you can't escape a dangerous situation. And you can't he's not saying we shouldn't hold people accountable for their actions. We should. What Jesus is saying is do not seek revenge, do not pay retaliation to them. So, revenge is when we take the law into our own hands, becoming judge, jury, and executioner, responding with hate and evil. Instead, we should seek justice through the proper means by which God has ordered the world and appointed governments. And in the end, we can trust God will make all things right and administer justice on the last day. For eternity, He will make all things right. For example, Leviticus 19:18 says, "You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord." And then again, in Proverbs 24:28, "Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, "I will do to him as he has done to me." I will pay the man back for what he has done. Again, we are not to repay evil with evil, but pay evil with good. And lastly, Paul uh, elaborates on this theme in Romans twelve nineteen. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It is not ours to take. So God will have the ultimate vengeance and provide justice ultimately for eternity for those who do not repent. But He also provides justice in the here and now through those who are in authority and the government. As He continues this theme in Romans thirteen three, He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he, that is, the authorities, the rulers that he has appointed, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we are not to seek revenge. We are to leave it into God's hands, and we will let him met out the justice, either now through the governing authorities or in eternity. So look back in 539. He gives us four examples, each a different area of life. He gives us an example of a principle that love does not seek revenge. First, we're not to repay evil with evil in the, uh, in the example of physical harm. So when someone slaps you in the face, the expected response would be to punch them back, to slap them back. Jesus says, no, do not do what the sinful heart, the inclination of the heart wants to do, but turn the other cheek. Do not seek revenge. And then in verse 40, not only should we not seek revenge because of a loss in a legal suit, we should also go beyond what the law requires. For Jesus is likely referring to a legitimate court case in which the person really owes some retribution. So the image is of them going to court and they've done wrong. Don't try to deceive and get revenge, sue them back for something to get back at them. Admit you've done wrong and actually go above and beyond what the court case has settled. And then in verse 41... Jesus gives the example of one who abuses their authority against us with the soldier who makes them walk a mile. And he says, don't seek revenge on this person, but go the extra mile out of compassion and humble desire to serve. And in the last example, verse 42, we are not to seek revenge by withholding money from those who are in need of it. So one commentator writes that Jesus condemned even passive-aggressive expressions of retaliation and this one hits home for me because this is me this is what I would do I would be passive-aggressive like well I'm not going to do anything actively but I'm going to do everything passive-aggressively that I can to hurt you and that's how I'm going to seek revenge on you and I think that's a lot of people in our context today is that they would seem very nice on the outside you couldn't point to one thing that they did but you could point to a lot of things that they didn't do They didn't love the other person. They sought revenge by being passive-aggressive, withholding help when they needed it. Again, the commentator goes on. He says, He insisted that his disciples should view an enemy's adversity not as an opportunity to rub salt in his wounds or kick him while he is down, but to express love and generosity. So thus, no matter what area of life, physical harm, legal court cases, issues of authority helping those in need, we should not seek revenge. Again, revenge is different than getting to safety, than seeking justice. Justice is done with a pure heart, out of love. Revenge is from a heart of hate and evil. So how does this apply to our lives? And I think a good picture of Uh, that came to mind, I read this past year, one of my favorite fictional books of all time. It's called Dawn of Wonder by Jonathan Renshaw. And near the end of the book, the main character, a young boy about 15 years old named Aidan, has a near-death experience in which he has a vision of God on his throne. And while before God, he realizes how unworthy he is. And this is how the scene goes. Until now, he had always thought of himself as a good and noble of heart. Yes, there had been some wrong choices, but it was an unasked for history that had forced him into those paths. Those choices were his father's doing, his father's fault. So he's blaming his sin on someone who harmed him. He was damaged, not guilty. So he never saw his guilt until now. He says, As he lowered his gaze from God down, he saw that he was holding a deep cauldron. When he looked inside, he almost vomited. He did not need to be told what it contained. It was the vile mixture of all the hatred stored and brewed for his father. The debt he had kept that he intended to settle. For he intended to seek revenge on his father who had hurt him. It was his treasure that he held dear inside this cauldron. Then God said, Kneel, shaking the ground. Aiden tried to kneel, but the cauldron was as big as a storage vat and it prevented him from reaching his knees. He tried to pull the, the cauldron away from him, but he could not. And Aiden cried, Help me. And just then there was no surge of power, just the faintest tingling in his arms, the cauldron ripped free, and once he had torn it loose, he flung it down on the ground where the liquid poured out and was washed away. Finally, he was able to fall on his knees, and as he did so, the stains that covered him began to fade. Then from the distance, Aidan saw his father. His fists clenched automatically and he felt something in his grip. It was a dagger. Aiden understood at once what he needed to do, what he had never been able to do before. Looking not at his father, but towards the foot of the throne, he opened his hand and dropped the blade, releasing judgment to the one higher. I thought this was a, just a beautiful picture of Someone who has been hurt, who wants to seek revenge on someone who's hurt him. But when standing before God, he sees the revenge in his heart for what it is sin, vile, against God who is perfect and holy. And he, he calls us to release the dagger, release the cauldron of what we've been treasuring, because you cannot hold on to your revenge and hold on to your hate and at the same time bow before the king. So draw near to the throne of Jesus today, casting all your fears, hatred, and feelings of revenge before His feet so that you can kneel in worship in humble adoration of our perfect King. Don't hold on to your revenge any longer, but seek to love, even loving your worst enemy, which is our third point, which involves love is for their good. So how then should we live? We should imitate God, who is our perfect Heavenly Father, by loving everyone, even our enemies, by thinking and acting towards them for their good and praying for their good. That was true biblical love is. We pick up in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those as your heavenly Father is perfect. So look back at verse 43. You may notice that there is no Old Testament passage that says to hate your enemy. So again, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, Jesus is refuting their interpretation of Old Testament law. And so they would interpret something like Leviticus 19.18, which we've read before already today, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They would read that says, all right, love our neighbor as ourself. Well, it doesn't say we can't hate our enemy, so I'm going to go with that. So they twisted scripture to make it mean what they wanted. So it might be something like this. If I told my four-year-old Leland, I said, don't punch your sister, all right? And I walk in the next room, and I hear Eloise crying. She, she, was, she was hurt. I go in I say, Leland, I told you not to punch your sister. He looks at me and says, I, he says, I didn't punch her. I kicked her. <laughs> you missed the point, Leland. I, you're not supposed to hurt your sister at all. So in, in verse 44, Jesus calls us to actually love our enemies. Not just our neighbors. Just not, not just the people that we like. But our enemies. Those who actually persecute us. And Jesus has in view here seemingly the worst possible enemy, those who persecute us for our faith. Thus, if we are to love our neighbor and our worst enemy, that leaves no out-of-bounds for the direction of our love. There is no one excluded from the love command. We are to love our parents, to love your spouse, to love your kids, to love your friends, your co-workers, the person who changes your oil, your local and state politicians, people in other countries, people in other religions, people in other Christian denominations, people in Iran, China, Russia, persecutors of the church, we are called to love them all. Thus, the call to love our enemies puts into perspective the command to love our neighbors those that even non-Christians love. Non-Christians even seek to love those who are like-minded. Non-Christians even seek to love those who love them. We are to love those who do not love us. And furthermore, how can we even attempt to love our enemies if we cannot love our friends, our family, or even our brothers and sisters in Christ well? And how are we to love? What does it mean to love them? Verse 44 mentions that we should be praying for them praying for someone is a way that we can love them now i want to clarify what praying for someone means it is not like this country song in which a man prays for his ex-girlfriend i don't know if you've heard this but this is not what prayer should be like he says i haven't been in church since i don't remember when things weren't going great till they things were going great till they fell apart again so I listened to the preacher as he told me what to do. He said, You can't go hating others who have done wrong to you. Sometimes we get angry, but we must not condemn. Let the good Lord do his job, and you just pray for them. Good so far. Don't do this. He says, I pray your bricks go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a sill." That's not how we should pray. We pray for the other's good. We pray that blessing be poured on them, that God would be gracious, that He would save them, that He would change their heart, that He would provide every single one of their needs. Let's follow the example of Stephen instead. Stephen was the first martyr, and he, he prays for his enemies as they're stoning him. Acts 7.59 And as they were stoning Stephen and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Let us be like Stephen. when In the midst of persecution, we would be praying for their salvation. We would be praying that they would turn from their sin and be accepted into God's kingdom. As one commentator notes, Stephen's willingness to forgive his slayers comes as an arrow in our hearts. Most of us hardly face what Stephen faced. The injustices rendered against us seem small and trifling by comparison. Yet we often harbor deep-seated resentment and hardness against those who have committed them. Stephen shows us the way to be spirit-filled and Jesus-like, to forgive, to pray for blessing on our enemies. And the type of love that Jesus is calling for us to do is not self-serving love. That is not true love. For look in verse 46. He says, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So the tax collectors would have this self-serving kind of love, since they had betrayed their own subjected people and befriended the Roman oppressors for the sake of their personal financial gain. Jesus is calling us to love everyone, even our worst enemies, without the expectation of getting repaid for it in this life. So we don't love someone so that they can do something for us. We, we are to have selfless love that seeks the good of the other person, no matter what they may do to us. Luke explains it this way in Luke six twenty seven. He says, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who persecute you. And as one commentator writes, love for neighbor and love for enemy isn't limited to an impulse. It isn't limited to a feeling or attitude, but extends to action. How can you show someone that you love them this week? How can you go out of your way, not for selfish gain, but purely for the other person's good? And one, uh, a big example of this, I uh, read about an, a nurse who um, had been held captive along with her brother in war. And her brother was actually killed by a soldier before her very eyes. And somehow this nurse, she escaped and later became a nurse in a military hospital. And one day she was stunned to find that same man who had killed her brother had been captured and brought wounded to the hospital where she worked. Something within her cried out, Vengeance. But a stronger voice called out for her to love. She nursed that man back to health. And finally, the healthy soldier asked her, Why didn't you just let me die? Her answer was, I am a follower of Him who said, Love your enemies and do good to them which hate you. So back in verse 45... It says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So we are to love everyone and love even our enemies, because our Father loves his enemies. We were once enemies of God. Before we trusted in Christ, we were enemies of God. So when we love our enemies, we show the world who our who our God is who our Father is. Additionally, God the Father exhibits His love for His enemies and His common grace of life to all people, whether evil or good, by causing new days with the rise of the sun and life to be sustained with the giving of water by rain. So when you see someone who is utterly evil going away from the path of God, you say, why is he being blessed? It's because God's common grace... On him. He lets it rain, fall, and blessing go to the evil and the good. God is in control and gives out these good gifts to everyone. And at the end of our passage, it concludes with verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a goal of perfection which we can't, cannot be achieved in this life. Only God is perfect. As one commentator writes, whereas any definable set of rules could in principle be fully kept, the demand of the kingdom of heaven has so much limit, or rather its limit is perfection, the perfection of God. That is our goal that we strive for by the power of His Spirit. Thanks for listening. For more information, see unionchapelbaptist.org.